Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. This is JM, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Nate and Gretchen. What's up, everybody? I'm doing good. I just am home now. I finished all of my finals for this semester, so uh, I'm just relaxing here, which is very nice. Yeah, it's always a nice feeling to relax. I've had a bit of a stressful couple weeks, so it's going to be good to unwind and talk with you guys about some lighthearted subjects like Nazis, mm. abduction, weapons of mass destruction, and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, all that wonderful <laughs> stuff. Yeah, so we've, we have taken a couple of extra weeks to record this time. Life gets in the way sometimes, and we wanted to make it good. So it's a little later than usual, but hopefully everybody who's listening has just been frothing at the mouth and, and really hoping that we'll get out a really good episode because we have some cool stuff ahead. And... Just before we get started, I'd just like to run down some of our things. So, as I said, we are the Chrononauts podcast. We discuss science fiction literature and many things adjacent to science fiction literature, which will be a big thing tonight. There might be a little bit less sci-fi content than what some people might be used to, but I think you'll still enjoy it, and we certainly did. So, it's going to be really fun to discuss this stuff. But we can be found on all your usual podcast platforms as well as anchor.fm we have a blog spot where we put up many translations and original digitizations of certain works you can find that at chrononautspodcast.blogspot.com we're also on twitter at at chrononautssf okay yes thank you and you can also send us an email at chrononautspodcast at gmail.com so, today we're discussing the wonderful world of spy fiction, specifically the very early days of spy fiction. So, although I want to commence by just sort of asking you guys what your experience is with spy fiction up till now, and I'm sure we'll all be bringing up a lot of later period entries, and there's certainly been a lot more scholarship on stuff from after the Second World War which seems to be sort of when uh, the Cold War seems to be really when this genre exploded big time. But there was a lot of earlier stuff that can be classified in this field, which we'll get to. What do you know, know about spy fiction? Or I should say, what did you know before we started this research? Well, my experience with spy fiction has really started to happen more more recently since I have gotten into the series Man from Uncle. I got into that about a year ago, and before that I really didn't know if I had much of an interest in spy-fi. It wasn't a genre I was as familiar in. But since then I've started to get into more of the visual media, the television series and and the film relating to spy fiction. So it's really interesting to start reading some of the literature related to spy-fi. Cool. Yeah. James Bond was a pretty big part of my childhood, specifically the Sean Connery films. And I think James Bond as a franchise has probably been invoked on the podcast more often than like any other work that we've covered, uh, <laughs> that we haven't covered yet. Um, Doctor Who probably. Yeah. Uh, mm. Doctor Who. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> certainly we, we've we mentioned James Bond a fair amount. And I think for pretty good reason. I mean, it has very wide reach and the movies are just cool. And I don't really know too much about the genre aside from those early films. There's like a huge world of like Euro spy stuff. And I've seen a couple of those like Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic 
I guess you could kind oh, yeah, of I love that movie. lump in with that one, which is like, yeah, absolutely great. But I wouldn't really know. I don't know if it's really spy. It's more like a like weird criminal caper kind of. There's not a lot of spy action in it, but I can see why it's sort of linked to the genre. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of Bava stuff, it's just really cool how it plays out. But the literature itself, I think really the first time I've touched upon the early stuff is with the podcast, even though we haven't really done a spy novel all the way through before this episode. There's certainly some elements of works we've covered in the past, like Angel of the Revolution and Where the Air Quivered in particular, that have some elements that you could really see as being precursors to what spy fiction would take place, namely the cool gadgets and the whole secret agent stuff of posing as somebody or not. In particular, that scene in Angel of the Revolution where they make the prison break and they have to like dress as the guards who they just took out or whatever. That felt like a very spy fiction type scene yeah and i i think that comes up in one of the works that we're going to be covering tonight even so i am going to mention angel and the revolution briefly in a little while because it does tie into what we're doing so yeah spy fiction is actually although i can't say that i'm well versed in the genre it's been with me for a while i didn't actually see too much james bond till i was probably in my early teens i think the first one i watched was the spy who loved me and i i remember seeing that on late night television one day before that, though, I had also I had watched the film North by Northwest. Oh yeah, and uh, that's definitely definitely an entry in the genre. <laughs> and I also read John Le Carre. I read my first John Le Carre book when I was quite young, actually, The Spy Who Came In from a Cold. And I read a few of his other books later on when I was a little bit older. So I quite like I quite enjoy him. And he's a somebody that we're not covering tonight, but he's very important in the development of spy fiction and the reason we're not covering him is he's quite a bit later getting his start really in the 1950s or 60s i think and of course ian fleming read a couple of those james bond books as well because i wanted to see how they compared to the films i guess mostly you know most of them are quite different than the movies a lot of the time the movies maybe are better actually but also of course being a fan of the sort of post i guess Post-spy renaissance British dramas like The Avengers and especially mm-hmm. The Prisoner, which is pretty much almost a, a postmodern take on the spy genre. Yeah, it's interesting its relationship with Danger Man and how it plays out against those episodes. I've actually never seen Danger Man. It's they they play it straightforward. You know, he's like a secret agent. They even have the song "Secret Agent Man" as the theme oh, yeah. song, and I think in the American mm-hmm. version. And I know a couple of the Prisoner episodes started out as Danger Man scripts, but they got reworked into the Prisoner setting. And it's it's kind of interesting to compare the two with one another as how the stories play out, as how the characters are portrayed, just how the shots are composed. It's a very interesting contrast. Number six could be Danger Man. Yeah, and I think that theory has been floated many times on the internet before. I see. So I should really check that out then. That might, might fill in some context because... A lot of my thoughts about The Prisoner come from well after the fact of watching it because I was so, I thought the episodes were great, but I never really understood the context behind them. You know, I never understood yeah. who number six was supposed to be exactly and why why any of this was happening. And sort of some of that understanding came to me afterwards, but it's a very enigmatic series, which is part of what makes it interesting to watch. So the spy fiction genre 
can trace its beginning to the early 20th century, and writers like William LeCoeur, Erskine Childers, E. Phillips Oppenheim, and John Buchan. And they were all Brits. But there were earlier antecedents, and many of these were American. For example, in 1827, James Fenimore Cooper wrote The Spy. And, of course, scares about Germans were common, even in the 19th century works. Espionage-oriented fiction, often delivered with a somewhat polemic character as a warning, sort of similar to the Battle of Dorking, which is sort of a more overtly militaristic example of the same sort of thing. Civilization is fragile, and there are enemies at every corner. And it's commonly thought still that spy fiction was a largely British creation. However, along with Fenimore Cooper, well, Christine Bold and her essay, Secret Negotiations, the spy figure in American popular fiction, maintains that despite screeds to the contrary from popular American figures who basically said, oh, we don't need any of this espionage stuff because, yeah, we're free and open and, and uh, right. we don't have to hide anything. The American Republic was a home for spy fiction in the dime novels. And she did a lot of research and found over 100 titles involving spies, secret service, etc. And these mostly followed the dime novel formula. Though some spies are marginalized people, which is sort of interesting. There's the red spy and the black spy who has the extra fantastic frisson of being a master of ventriloquism and others. You think Frank Reed ever had a spy story? <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, part of the nature of the subterfuge, though, is that sometimes the nature of these figures is revealed to be a sham. For example, the red spy is a white man made up to look native. There were also occasionally women spies. One entry that I thought was interesting is our friend Edward S. Ellis, who wrote The Steam Man of the Prairies, created the forest spy. And a part of the theme that we'll be addressing and that I'm going to bring up during this introduction is that a major part of the spy story involves a person having some kind of awakening Usually it's somebody who's not involved in politics, but who sort of sees the need for it and has a transformation. So the forest spy starts out the story as a cowardly fool, but is slowly turned into a man once he adopts the name of the forest spy. An interesting feature of these early American examples is that they kind of were very blatant about the nature of the person being a spy, like in within the story. Like it was almost like, hey, I'm a spy. You know, look at me. Uh, it's kind of maybe the nature of, of espionage hadn't quite been worked out yet because it's almost like taking pride in it and, and not being secretive about it almost. It's like, hey, look, there's the spy. Yeah. <laughs> but let's return to Britain, which is where the majority of this stuff actually comes from. So the spy story really got its start between 1900 and 1914. And before this time, espionage was pretty casual. And there was no such thing as a secret service. So most spies were amateurs or just informants. MI5 was formed in 1907. And James Edmund appointed head. 
the primary assumption of the military intelligence organizations at that time, of course, was that Germany was going to invade and had an army of spies operating in the country already. Intelligence tended to confirm prejudices rather than offer accurate information. So when a small group of German spies was discovered, it was considered proof that they were right. They were underestimating rather than overestimating the German presence in the country. They were, in fact, everywhere. So in this way, fantasy and reality are intertwined. And the spy novel actually had a hand in shaping the future of intelligence, which is a really interesting and slightly scary phenomenon. I mean, we talk about this a little bit on the podcast in theory and how a lot of modern day scientists and so on are science fiction fans, hence you get some cool names for asteroids and stuff. But this is an example of fiction influencing fact in a way that's sometimes outright dangerous. So it was believed that there was a secret network of service people, mostly waiters and clerks and things like that, of German descent or origin trained in sabotage and ready to blow up railroads and telegraph lines when the call for war came. And this was something specifically talked about in the rather paranoid-sounding novels of William LeCoeur and Erskine Childers. I haven't read any of these, but I've read a bunch of essays in preparation for this episode. They talk extensively about the work these people did. So James Edmonds, the head of MI5, he wanted a way to confirm his suspicions about Germany after taking over the Secret Service organization. And they didn't have much in the files on Germany at that time. So then, though, William LeCoeur wrote Spies for the Kaiser in 1909. And this was serialized in the paper, The Weekly News. All of a sudden, in the regular news columns of the paper, all these headlines about spies started appearing. And the paper even had a special spy editor, uh, though exactly what he was supposed to do is sort of a mystery to me. But nevertheless, they received letters denouncing perfectly innocent people. If you swore in German or even wore a wig, well, you could be one of those dangerous spies. LeCou himself received a number of such letters, which he then passed on to Lieutenant Colonel Edmonds at MI5. Edmonds had ammunition to convince the Imperial Defense Committee to set up a Secret Services Bureau, which they did. Nearly all of Edmonds' evidence was totally fabricated nonsense. Among Edmonds' allies, there were many men in the military, all of whom were fans of spy fiction. There was a Captain Kell who seemed to recruit a large number of young military men who had a somewhat disturbing love of subterfuge and disguises. Even the captain's wife was supposedly alarmed by all this. So Erskine Childers published The Riddle of the Sands, and that was another book that spoke of German naval invasion. So the Navy and military experts were actually asked to investigate possibilities described therein. And they said... None of the tactics used in the book were realistic, and none of it could actually happen. But those books were already considered patriotic milestones. The modern writer David Stafford describes the early British spy novels and spy heroes as politically conservative, didactic, with upstanding and incorruptible agents who were British to the core and very much participants in the gentleman's club kind of culture. 
And there was a perception among hardline Tory types that a certain internal rot was seeping into British culture, starting with the lower classes, who had already succumbed, and working its way up to the gentlefolk and nobility. And there was, of course, a precedent for the spy novel already in literature, the so-called terrorist novel of the late 19th century, inspired by real-world events, anarchists, uprisings, and so on, of which the Angel of the Revolution is a particularly odd and popular example. There were even real-life examples of the sorts of ridiculous gadgets that you'd see in especially later spy fiction works. For example, the Irish Dynamite School in Brooklyn did an interview and gave some sketches to the Pall Mall Gazette, where they described explosive cigars, flasks, and other objects that were to be used to terrorize England into granting Irish independence. In any case, Lecoeur could be considered the father of spy fiction, along with Oppenheim, especially with his 1898 novel, The Mysterious Mr. Sabin, whereas The Battle of Norking from Chesney is cautionary. Lecoeur, in novels like The Invasion of 1910, describes and capitalizes on paranoia. Anyone could be a spy, your neighbor, your friend, your tailor, a golfing partner. All the world's navies and armies are amassing to destroy Great Britain. Nicholas Hiley, a King College researcher at the Department of War Studies, has written many articles about the history of intelligence in Britain and stresses that pretty much all ideas around intelligence service around this time that is, the pre-First World War period, are directly brought about by fiction. It fully shaped the way the world really worked. So we have a perfect example of life imitating art, essentially. Now, the purpose of MI5 was really to catalog spies, not to chase them. So most of the people they had on their files were perfectly innocent. All the while, spies were filling the newspaper stands and bookstalls of Britain. Many crime writers wanted to or even have participated in intelligence work, or the so-called silent game. E. Phillips Offenheim begged to and said he thought he ought to know about it, being a spy novelist and everything, but he was apparently turned down. But you would see later on, especially during the Cold War period, writers of this type of fiction who were involved in the real game, so while the weekly news was serializing Spies of the Kaiser by Lecoeur, and at the same time the spy editor was saying things like, readers may have discovered some of these spies at work, may have had adventures with them, may have seen the photographs, charts, and plans they are preparing. So you can sort of guess probably what happened next. A lot of people wrote in to say that very thing. And the stories people wrote in were getting to Lecoeur, who was sending them to his boss at the new MI5 HQ. The Riddle of the Sands was bought by the Director of Naval Intelligence. And this was a 1903 novel showing a German invasion via barges from the Frisian Islands. So as was said, the experts were investigating and they said, no way. That was the general answer from the so-called experts all across the board. But... That didn't stop the spymongering at all. Lieutenant Vivian Brandon was sent on a covert survey of the North German coasts, 
and he was arrested and questioned, and he mentioned the book several times. He later wrote from a prison in Leipzig, and I just thought this was interesting because this was a quote that kind of sort of emphasizes just how weird this whole phenomenon was and how it sort of took over people's minds. He said, Looking back on the lighthearted way in which I drifted into this adventure, I recognize that I am somewhat of a Peter Pan, and that I've never really grown up. Unfortunately, I have not got Peter's talent for flying through windows, or I should not be here now. I don't know why, but that, that quote just sort of affected me. It was kind of sad, you know? I mean, yeah. I don't really know what <laughs> happened to the guy. I'm assuming he was probably sent back to England, but it's just the poor dude. <laughs> but unlike LeCoup, Oppenheim seemed really into secret societies. And often these worked for the benefit of Britain, even the Nihilist Society of Mr. Sabin. But there are rival secret societies as well. And the amateur spy starts to take over in his work, culminating in 1920's The Great Impersonation, in which an Englishman impersonates a German who was attempting to impersonate himself. <laughs> in order to get secrets from the British upper class and nobility or something. Oppenheim wanted to do his part, wanted to participate in the secret service world. The person he applied to was one G. Mansfield Smith Cummings, called C. by his many subordinates. I think you can see a parallel with James Bond here. So he surrounded himself with cloak and dagger mystery and while it was listed pretty plainly in the London Post Office directory, seemed to go out of his way hilariously to hide his identity. So where this figure of the spy and all the mystique and intrigue and danger that surrounds him originates, one can speculate. Nicholas Hiley suggests a link with the Victorian pornographic novel, maintaining that the liaisons in hidden back rooms, secretive establishments with a double purpose, and vague suggestions of foreign vices and uh, the Edwardian spy story have definite similarities, and that at the outset it would be hard to tell one from the other. In 1918, a Captain Harold Spencer published in the newspaper The Imperialist a supposedly true story of a network of corruption and blackmail set up in England by the Germans. Now, of course, don't forget by now, the war is happening, so... We're in an entirely different climate. He described a volume compiled by German Secret Service operatives listing thousands of compromised English men and women, eating establishments and public houses given over to sexual vice, and flats where people might be taken for blackmail liaison purposes. This purported volume went on for over a thousand pages. Spencer stridently declared the sexual habits of the peerage and especially their wives were being used by the enemy to uncover state secrets and more. This was a very, very popular article, and it was reprinted as a pamphlet. We fear the contents of the locked room, but also yearn to experience it. And the Victorian pornographic novel was not wholly free of hints of espionage and international intrigue either. Of course, once again, Germans are the enemy and the signifiers of corruption, both moral and national. As you might expect, there was a certain spy fever among civilians during the First World War. There were many reports 
particularly from young people, perhaps readers of spy fiction, about encounters with spies, some of them quite strange, such as the report of a 16-year-old girl kidnapped by a doubtless German and forced to operate a mysterious signaling machine, strange men on bicycles offering to buy letters, attacks on signalmen and railroad people who smashed equipment. Most of these reports were investigated and declared total invention, but then they would be, wouldn't they? The police admitted they couldn't prove any of these supposed conspiracies, but the allure was so strong that even that mere statement was seen as proof that the fantasies were real. The amateur spy, or waking innocent, is a feature of pre-professional agent spy fiction, but it never entirely went away. We're about to discuss a work which very much incorporates these innocent figures. But early innocence in fiction of writers like Lequeux and his colleague Erskine Childers, both staunch patriots who believed the job fell to them and people like them to solve the spy problem and the looming German threat were perhaps not so innocent. There was a certain thing called the Imperial School of Colonial Instruction. Sounds rather ominous nowadays, but possibly at the time people thought nothing of it. This was a training ground with a regular newsletter and advertised strenuous physical activity and preparation. Emphasis was made on outdoorsmen and sports and general physical wellness. They were essentially scouts. Indeed, the Boy Scouts were founded in 1909 by Lieutenant General Robert Baden-Powell, another dramatic patriot. He had a lot to say about spies and how you could detect him. To him, and this was an increasingly prevalent thought, the spy was someone who masqueraded as a normal person in society, but could be sussed out by certain peculiarities. He said to his soldiers in a 1914 publication called Aids to Scouting for NCOs and Men, If you want practice at detecting spies, they are not uncommon, and you need not go out of England to find them. Spies can be discovered by noting the small peculiarities and details of passers-by. Get to know the view and action from behind of anyone you suspect. Then if you come across the same back a few days later with an entirely different face, you may consider him worth further attention. I have had the pleasure of arresting four foreign European spies at different times in peacetime in England and have casually detected others abroad. One an officer passing as a hotel waiter, another as a tourist, a third was a lady, and so on. Certain foreign governesses could tell you a good deal about our army. A key goal to regenerate the empire, which was going soft. You can see why paranoia would begin to run rampant. This was the key to detecting espionage action, not so much hunting spies, but recording strange and singular occurrences, whose causes could be multiform, but were often attributed to spy action. And if you want an example of just how weird this could get, take this incident from 1914. A group of four people claiming to be government surveyors was reported to the Scottish police as engaging in suspicious behavior. Their English was good, and they weren't wearing wigs over their good heads of hair or anything, but... 
One of them was dressed as a chauffeur, yet appeared to be mingling and friendly with the other three. And it was him who bought the drinks. So we have a subversion of the proper order of things. Later in 1914, there was a general order to scout for buildings that could be used as possible enemy installations. Some officers were a little overzealous about this. Unidentified structures at places like the diesel works and the Danish butter factory were reported as wireless installations. Water towers listed as possible machine gun emplacements. So the most famous of the early fictional innocent agents was Richard Hanne. He was the creation of John Buchan in his novel The 39 Steps from 1915, which was famously made into a film by Alfred Hitchcock, which is a great film, by the way. I think he redid it, too, in the 50s. So it was one of those films like The Man Who Knew Too Much that was part of his early British talking film career and then was redone in an American studio. Yeah, he's done, he'd done a bunch of those, I think. I yeah. haven't seen a good lot of his filmography, but it's somebody I'd like to get to more of. I don't know that there were that many, but there were at least three or four, maybe. Yeah. I think Dial M for Murder, possibly, as well. Anyway, there was a sequel, Grain Mantle, where he had achieved a semi-professional status, and several subsequent books as well. David Stafford says the heroes of these novels are inevitably single men who share close friendships with one another. There are heroines, too, but they are often depicted as having male-like characteristics, often being compared with adolescent boys. Transformations also become quite prominent. Metamorphoses, if you will. The cupboard contains a hiding man. The English coward who appears to be shirking duty in war is himself actually a secret serviceman. The hotel manager is a German spy. Is that the spies coming for you now? <laughs> it, it might. Well, they're being very loud about it, but... Yes. Uh, <laughs> your friend is really your enemy, or vice versa. Now, skipping through much of the 1920s, we get the 1930s. Of course, one thing we have to say about spy fiction and such, no matter how much it engendered paranoia and a weird kind of life-imitates-art thing, they were certainly right. The Germans were the great enemy to come. Nevertheless... According to Eric Holmberg, the 1930s were a period of appeasement in the genre, reflecting the politics of the time and Britain's slowness to recognize Nazi danger. Organizations like The Link, a Germanic Anglo-Friendship League, engaged many prominent citizens and were considered somewhat respectable, at least for the first half of the decade. Even left-wing people were a part of this. While the Germans were still the enemy in the thrillers, it was usually personal vendetta and not political. The motive of the protagonists had to be non-political. The writers mostly tried to avoid the subject of politics. Fascism was certainly horrible, but expressed in the pages of the novel was the same sort of bafflement you saw in real life. There seemed to have been a certain lack of understanding that Nazi persecution was actually public policy, and there was a tendency to reduce things to the level of gangsterism and schoolyard bullies. I think our novel, at least in part, that we're about to discuss from 1941, after war has been declared, is sort of a response to that. It definitely feels like it, yeah. 
Yeah, although you still get a bit of that, ha-ha, look at those funny Germans and their funny goose-stepping and their Heil-Hitlering. But, like, it's it's okay to be lighthearted about it. But I think what the message that Eric Holmberg was trying to convey in his essay is is sort of that it's too it was too late by that time. Uh, it was too late to just consider it in that fashion. And the English people, and perhaps Americans as well, were very slow to kind of realize that it was more serious than all that. Yeah, I think the English mm-hmm. certainly came around first because they were the ones that got bombed and not the Americans. The American yeah. entry into the European theater was like much later. Mm. But by the time this novel, Above Suspicion, was written in 1941, Britain was already in the war. Yes. I'm not going to talk about what happened after the Second World War. Just briefly, you know, there were a few generations of spy writers. and yeah. uh, That'll be for a later episode. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, it would be cool, actually, to to talk about some of the Fleming books, for instance, maybe. Mm-hmm. But there is a pendulum effect, sort of, and you, you notice this sometimes in art, I guess, where after the war, the genre kind of became more questioning of its values and more sort of left-wing authors started to come into play. But then by the time Ian Fleming was sort of leading the genre in Britain, it had kind of swung back the other way again. Mm-hmm. And just seems to be kind of the the way things go. You know, it's a bit of a political pendulum swinging back and forth between the generations. After that long intro, I think we'll take a break and talk about Helen Clark McGuinness. Before we get to our next author, uh, I'd just like to say that since we started doing this podcast, we have been sort of slowly fine-tuning the way we present things. And although it's been a little uncertain at first because we didn't get a ton of feedback, I have been hearing from some people. And the subject of spoilers has come up a few times. People have very different ideas about that and how it should be handled. And I sort of thought that because some people, they're very happy that we're a spoiler podcast because that means we can discuss the material quite intimately. But other people want to listen to the podcast but don't necessarily want to be spoiled. And we still kind of want them to listen to the podcast. And since we do cover sort of lesser known works, we can't really expect most people to have read these before we get to them. That We'd certainly love it if you read them on our behalf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What I think we're going to do going forward, we're still going to summarize the works and run through them and do a bit of a synopsis and make comments where appropriate or inappropriate, as the case may be. We're going to start each discussion of a work by making some general comments and maybe giving you, the audience, a feel for whether you might actually be interested in reading this book, assuming you have it, or this short story, or whatever. And we're going to talk more generally about how we feel about it and its impact on the genre or lack thereof and reasons why you might be interested in it. So we're going to begin now talking about Helen Clark McGinnis. 
She was born in 1907 in Glasgow, Scotland, studied at the university in Glasgow, and received her master's degree in French and German before going to London to study to be a librarian. There, she met her husband-to-be, Gilbert Hyatt, and they married in 1932. He got a teaching post at Oxford, and they traveled around a lot, and the couple would seem to be in part the basis for the main characters of her first novel, Above Suspicion, published in 1941. She and Hyatt had their honeymoon in Europe and spent time in Bavaria, where she experienced the kind of Nazi oppression that inspired the novel we will be talking about. It's kind of interesting that she had the honeymoon in real life. In the film adaptation of this, they changed the main characters to being Americans on their honeymoon. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all watched the film, right? I didn't uh, get a yes. chance to watch the film, but I watched the uh, the trailer and a couple scenes from it. Mm. Okay. I was able to watch the film. so uh, And I did. I was going to say that about the, the honeymoon, that I thought it was interesting that they seems to lean more into that idea of the main characters of the novel being similar to Helen and her husband. Yeah, I think we'll talk more about the film after we've discussed the novel a bit, but it is an interesting comparison, definitely. So the couple settled in New York State in 1937, where Gilbert got a post teaching Latin and Greek at Columbia University. Before becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen, Hyatt did work for British intelligence. They collaborated on translations from German, and Helen wrote 21 novels between 1941 and 1984. Her novels are heavily informed by her travels around Europe and are known for containing accurate historical and geographical detail. Increasingly in the early 40s, her books were centered around resistance movements to Nazi occupation in both France and Poland, and later on she moved into Cold War espionage thrillers. She espoused a great interest in international politics and research. So, we are indeed talking about Above Suspicion from 1941, her first novel. All right, so what did everyone think of this one? I really like this one on the whole, and I think that this is a pretty significant one, perhaps not for the genre of science fiction or maybe even the genre of spy fiction, because it is a relatively late entry and it's not the first or anything like that, but it is a very good entry in it. And I think it's significant for the podcast itself in that World War II is a pretty major turning point from the early era of science fiction to the so-called golden age, or really where modern science fiction coalesces into its modern form. And virtually everything published from that time is easily recognizable as science fiction without a lot of the stretching caveats and like outside influence quantifiers that we've placed on some of these early works before. And you could really easily see that due to the atrocities committed on just such a mass scale, as well as the global restructuring of the world afterwards with the collapse of the old empires and the rise of the United States and the Soviet Union being the two remaining superpowers. And this is the first work we've covered on the podcast that directly deals with World War II, and it deals with it while it's still going on. So it's not really a historical look back on the time, but it's a very good political background to these changes that happen within the genre that are reflected in the literature afterwards. I do agree that it's a, a really, I really enjoyed the novel myself. And when I was reading it, I was thinking that when I have 
consumed media about World War II, it usually is more retrospective. It's made after the fact. So it was really interesting to read something that was when it was happening at that time and to see sort of the opinions of it while it was going on. I think that it's also just even though it is it does sometimes have those like conversations about of course what is happening with the Nazis and the impending war. It is also a pleasant novel. Like it's written very well. I really think that it's written in a a pretty like I said p- pleasant way and it doesn't have as much tension but it does it does ramp up later on in the book, I think. Yeah, she's good with the pacing. And there is that whole dark mood that's just kind of in the background throughout. But yeah, for the most part, it's like a fun adventure story. Mm-hmm. It feels like almost like a travelogue at yeah. times, the way that she yeah. describes Germany and, and the locations that they're in. And it makes a lot of sense that she personally traveled through Germany mm-hmm. and Europe herself. Yeah, I've been to a couple of places that have been mentioned in the novel. And yeah, she really nails the character of them. So I... Um... I did keep that in mind while reading that it was actually a more or less contemporary account. And it was kind of helpful to keep in mind that, yes, the war was still happening while she was writing this. And she was probably largely trying to make a political statement about intervention and about the folly of isolationist policies and stuff like that. I did enjoy the book. I I thought it was maybe a little bit too pleasant. Like, I would have liked a little bit more tension. But that's just me. I mean, it was well written. And uh, yeah, the background was really good. And I did enjoy the main character, Frances Miles. Like, I guess she's more or less the main character. Yeah, uh, I, I have a problem so. with that, which <laughs> I'll express later on. But I, I did enjoy her perspective. I enjoyed her uh, being inside her head a little bit. You know, at the beginning, it was just a little... Again, it was like it was very pleasant and I almost like I I wanted something more, but I did end up liking her and I ended up enjoying spending time with her. So there was that. And this is actually the second book by Helen McGinnis that I have read. Probably about 10 years ago or a little more, I read her book, Message from Malaga. And I thought it was okay. This was a book she wrote in 1971. And Some of the same problems that I had with this book, which we'll address in the spoiler discussion, I had with that one. But it's her voice, and I think that since she, since I kind of had the same feeling about that book, it just must be the way she does things. Now, she has 21 books, so there may be more variety in her writing than I'm I'm sort of realizing. But I I did enjoy it. I I thought it was quite well, well written, especially considering that she didn't seem to have any precedent for, for writing novels before this time. No, this is her first one. Yeah. yeah, and apparently it was her husband who sort of found some of the notes that she had written about their time in Bavaria and stuff, where she had just been writing down all this stuff. She'd written mm-hmm. down all this stuff about the governments and the places that they visited and stuff. And I guess he said to her, hey, you should turn this into a story. And so she did. Yeah, I, I heard that it was a diary that she was keeping in a radio program that I listened to about her. Mm. Yeah, and so I think we sort of answered my next question already, which was sort of, I'm always trying to think of a way, a proper way to phrase this, but what is a reason why we think that someone should read this book? I think you mentioned the characters, and they're really well done, particularly our two main protagonists of Francis and her husband. 
they feel more than just like the basic one-dimensional machismo characters that you really encounter a lot in these early pulpy adventure novels. I mean, the character from Angel of the Revolution, I what's her name? Natasha or Natasha. something like that? Yeah. yeah. She, I don't know. Daughter she, of Natas. She, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> she just didn't feel like a real person. She felt like some comic book you know, villain or something like that. Whereas yeah. Francis yeah. just, she feels like could be a real person and probably because she was based off of the author herself. And I think she put a lot of her personal relationship into the novel as well as her own travels. But yeah, the characters feel a lot more real and three-dimensional than some of the other characters that you might find in these early works. Agreed. And there's some humor in the book as well. I sounded a little bit like I was castigating for making light of Nazis and the funny Germans, but it was actually quite funny at times. There was a part I especially liked where Richard is, who's a university professor, he's imagining what it would be like if he walked into the lecture hall and just screamed to Heil Hitler and like how everybody would probably want to restrain him and call a doctor or something like that. Yeah. And <laughs> there's some other pretty funny stuff as well. So... It was a lighthearted story with heavier implications. And I think that's an interesting balance to strike. Agreed. I would say I do agree with the characters. I think the Mileses are really well done. And I like the others as well. We'll get into Robert and Henry when we get into the summary. But sure. I enjoyed them as well. I like the group dynamic. Yeah, no, it was definitely a, a fun little bunch they had going. Definitely a good one. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, check it out. So I think from... This point on, we'll be getting into the spoilers, so if you haven't read it and would like to, feel free to skip ahead to our next segment. So, with that in mind, our story starts out with Frances Miles walking around Oxford, where her husband Richard teaches, and he has a new book out on English poetry, so already getting a bit of the real-world couple in our characters. The progress of the war has restricted a lot of the movement in Europe, especially in the mountains, and Francis meets her husband in his office, who has a visitor, who is a Peter Galt, back from Bucharest. Peter's is a bit shaken, and they're all drinking sherry, because of course yeah. they are. And yeah. it turns out that he got involved with a spy, who was apparently killed in Bucharest, but Peter was able to flee, lest his friends might follow. Peter approaches them in a serious tone, and he says that he has a job for them. He wants them to go to Paris and meet someone there. They are to just act as normal tourists, go to museums, plays, and that kind of thing. But then, on a Saturday night, at the Café de la Paix, sit on the outside table, towards the left, ordering country with their coffee. Francis must wear a red rose, and Richard must spill his country. Um, I'm not really sure what that is. I guess I should have looked that up. Probably pronouncing that all wrong. Some sort of liqueur oh, that sure. I've never drank before. Yeah, I think it's really sweet. I... Oh, yeah, apparently he likes sherry, but not Cointreau, so... Yeah, I, I'm not a big liqueur fan myself, but I'll go for some sherry every now and then. So he used to spill this drink at 11 o'clock, and that's the signal for a man to approach, to which they'll give a passphrase. Mrs. Rose told me we must see. And then a name of the place of their choosing. And then the man will respond with a number, and one hour after that number... The next day, they'll go to the place they named and get the message from him. Peter explains he wants them, Francis and Richard in particular, 
as the message is likely in code, and Richard has just the sort of mind to crack it. The purpose here is to track the location of an anti-Nazi agent who is trying to escape Germany, and this whole elaborate system was set up by their Parisian agent. When they've finished, they're to wire to Geneva, and Richard is initially hesitant about bringing Francis, but Francis insists, and Peter agrees that she should go along. And while Richard isn't pleased with this situation, they make the preparations to go forward with it. Sometime later, Richard and Francis arrive at a party being held by their friend Frame, which is also well-stocked with sherry, as any proper English party should be. The party is filled with their friends, but Peter isn't there yet, and the conversation is quite lively. There are some undergraduates, and in particular a German von Aschenshausen. My German pronunciation is just as bad as my French, so again, European listeners, please bear with me during this yes. segment. I feel like I might pronounce some, mispronounce <laughs> some stuff as well. So, yeah, we're. I in think good von, von Aschenhausen sounds right. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Uh, the, von Aschenhausen. Consonants are a bit different in the throat, but yeah, that's the basic idea. I think they're discussing art and travel and that sort of thing. But it's the summer of 1939. And there's an obvious damper on the mood. But this von Aschenhausen has Oxford affiliations and appears to express sympathy for the German expansionism, which causes a bit of an argument. And the party breaks up a bit, and Richard chides Francis for arguing with a Nazi and tells her that Peter wanted to play the role of the dumb wife, so she shouldn't act so cultured and have opinions on things. The... Party is over, and Peter never showed. There's no sign from him, which means they're to go ahead, so Richard buys tickets to Paris. He takes out some traveler's checks and some French money. I don't know why she didn't just say francs. Were they using something else then? But French money he has. And fortunately, he's been granted a line of credit from some benefactor. They get their maps, pencils, and things together. They muse on their friends in Europe and remark on the use of concentration camps. And I think that's interesting in that this is an early use of that term in the context of the Nazi regime, given the novel was written in 1941, and the full horrors of the Nazis were not yet known to the outside world. But it seems quite clear that even at this stage in the war, there were gross human rights violations occurring. Yeah. (laughs) They both can't stand the way the political situation is going, and Richard is eager to put a cog in the Nazis' wheels. Francis wants to spend some time by the river before they go, and it's a bit of a nervous scene where there is lots of anxiety about Hitler, and they get back to their house and are greeted by Annie, who is their German maid. They have a long day tomorrow, so they decide to get some sleep, and after crossing the channel, they take a train down to Paris, and Francis is absorbed in the scenery. Francis is a bit nervous, reflecting on her situation, whereas Richard is more calm, and there's some direct references to Hitchcock and Steinbeck here, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah. That's cool. On the train, Richard has his eyes on a certain figure, and Francis gets some refreshing sleep. And when they get to their Paris hotel, Richard tells her about the men he was with, who were two Cambridge men that were being vague about their vacationing through Central Europe. One of them turned out to be a friend of Peter's, which makes him a bit uneasy, but they decide to have dinner and go out on the town. After a week in Paris, they give the appropriate signals at the cafe, And a man bumps into the waiter, showing them a watch face that's clearly visible with a certain time on it. When they get back to the hotel, Frances notices her address book is gone, and her creams have been rearranged. So they suspect somebody's been listening to them in the room next door, 
And this makes sleep impossible for them because they're just like so stressed out and worried that somebody is watching their every move. It's kind of a creepy feeling. At the cafe the next day, everything is quite jovial. There is a line here where they says the, quote, The shirt-sleeved man followed them, carrying two glasses of cherry brandy. You either drink cherry brandy or not at all, which (laughs) I thought was one of the humorous lines she throws at us. Yeah. For me, cherry brandy does not sound appealing in the least, but it I guess... It sounds horrible. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but they get into some lively and topical conversations with other foreigners at the cafe, and they feel like they've missed their appointment somehow. And as they're leaving, someone stops them and tells Richard that he left his book and uses this as an excuse to give him one. And when they get back to the hotel, they're talking about the book indirectly in the event that somebody is listening to them through the walls. And there is somebody listening, in fact, or trying to listen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But the book is a guidebook to southern Germany, and certain towns, Nuremberg, Ausberg, are marked, as is the name Anton Fugger. After some difficulty penetrating the clues, he deduces that he's to meet Anton Fugger of Marienstrasse in Nuremberg, who is free on Wednesday and Saturday from 11 until 1 o'clock. Francis wakes up a bit startled and disheveled, but they pack their bags and set them out towards Nice, which has a hotel staff talking about them. The maid, however, is quick to make a phone call telling somebody about their movements. On the train, Richard uses some of the more sensitive pages of the guidebook to light his pipe, and via Strasbourg, they reach Nuremberg. They get in late and get a taxi to their hotel, A different one that they had planned, as the other one had went away. They decide to call on Fugger the next morning. Francis is poorly dressed for the occasion, and the violent Nazi salutes and barkings are at odds with the peaceful scenes that are surrounding them. She drops her handbag, and as she does, her heel slips, and an American offers to help, but they thank him and get away quickly. They get some beers for lunch. Francis isn't much into the Gothic architecture, and they plan out a tram ride, and after traversing Marienstrasse, they don't find anything initially, but on their way back on foot, they find a bookshop that has the lettering on it that says A. Fugger. The next morning, Richard hits up the bookshop in the area, looking for some German lyrical poetry, and not having any luck, they move on to the marked bookstore. The girl working has no idea what they want, and is being kind of rude to them, but the bookseller communicates to them through vague hints to a volume called Oh My Love's Like a Red, Red Rose. The bookseller tells him that he'll have to order from Leipzig to find the volume that they're interested in, and Richard and Francis pay for the books they've grabbed, and on their way out, three men burst in with revolvers. Evidently looking for the bookseller, they've quite upset the clerk, and grill Richard a bit before letting them go with these like overdramatic Nazi salutes. The clerk there, was she was upset because... He was getting away because she was obviously trying to turn him in. Right. What a nasty piece of work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's quite a bit of that in this novel. Um, They go to another bookstore and then back to their hotel. The local papers are all Nazi propaganda, but they run into the American from before and have lunch with him. However, their hotel room has been searched and there's clear evidence they're being watched by patrons in the restaurant. They take a tram car to the castle and see the torture exhibit, and they get to know their American friend, who is an Henry M. Van Cortland from High Tor, New York, a newspaper man. The conversation sours a bit as they get into politics. They part ways, and Richard and Francis go to the movies, which they confuse their followers a bit by moving their seats around in the dark. And that night, Francis has these like really intense and dark dreams. 
The next day, they go to the museum, still trailed by two people who they make sure not to lose, as they figure if they act suspicious and lose their followers intentionally, they'll make their followers know that they know that they're being followed by them, and so they just want to kind of play it cool. <laughs> they decide to go out into the country, perhaps to Innsbruck, where the bookseller Fugger had indicated. And as they're talking, they run into Van Cortland again, both sides apologizing for getting into heated political discussion. As they're all walking together, they hear a cry. And it turns out that they're outside the Jewish ghetto, and a Nazi tells them to leave the area. The next day, they leave for Munich, which Francis finds very gloomy and depressing, the German character in particular being oppressive. They then head on to Mittenwald, with the intention to depart to Innsbruck in a few days. Their hotel is in the mountains, gorgeous and managed by a Frau Kuppler, who appears to be watching them. She asks them what brings them there, and Richard says the mountains, as he had been there before, and she appears to already know all about them. They get into asking her where they can go next, and after some roundabout suggestions, she suggests Innsbruck. As their conversation breaks off, it's awkward, and as everyone is watching them, they eventually retire to their rooms. So with that, I think, Gretchen, you want to take us through Innsbruck and the rest of our destination? Yes. So... Francis and Richard arrive at Innsbruck, and when they do, they purchase a bouquet, including some red roses, and they find their way to the hotel they are supposed to stay at, a cheaper, rougher establishment that also appears to be a popular spot for some dedicated members of the Nazi party, seeming to leave the next agent hiding in plain sight. They make their arrangements to stay with a man at the desk, and a young boy named Johann carries their possessions and stays with Francis while Richard leaves the room. When Francis tells Richard the, boy, the boy's name, he appears interested and asks questions about his behavior. The two end up going out, and as they do, Richard whistles while they are walking out of the inn, including the melody of Oh My Love's Like a Red Red Rose, while the man at the desk, looking up to see them leave, glances at Francis's hat. After a few days of staying at the inn, the man, who Johann calls Herr Kronsteiner, is not at his desk, and the couple find him waiting for them in their room. He tells them that he will be heading out on a journey the next day and may not return in time to see them check out, and he gives Richard one of two envelopes that he is holding. The first one Richard opens contains a hotel bill and shows the name of the owner, as Rudolf Kronsteiner, not Hans, as he had been told it would be. Risking the exposure of his intentions, Richard tells the man this, who then claims he gave them the wrong bill and gives him the other envelope, which has the information the couple need to meet the next agent. After telling Kronsteiner that they will be leaving within the next day or two, the latter leaves the room and Richard destroys the second paper that was handed to him after memorizing its contents. Richard tells Francis their next stop is Pertazau M. Oshensee. As they go out that evening, the couple run into Henry Van Cortland again, who is heading to Vienna through Tyrol. It is while the three are dining together that Francis and Richard spot yet another familiar face, Robert Thornley, one of the two young men that they had met on the train ride to Paris. They invite him to join them and ask about the other man, Tony. Robert tells them that Tony is in Prague, that his goal on, his, on the trip was to find a young woman he had met in Britain and get her out of the country before her life is threatened by the Nazis, and that Robert is waiting in Innsbruck to hear from them. If he doesn't, within the next month, he tells them he will go back to Prague to help Tony and the woman. The Mileses tell the two others of their plan to head to Pertisau, 
and invite them to come with them for a few days, which they both agree to. Francis realizes that this is likely an attempt by Richard to have people he can leave her under the protection of. After Johan helps them pack and get ready the next morning, the couple heads off to Pertisau by train. Reaching the village, they discover that the hotel they plan to stay at is fully booked and take up a room at a smaller house owned by a Frau Schichtel, who Francis strikes up a conversation with and gains an affection for. Richard then tells Francis more information about their next meeting. The man is a Dr. Mespelbrunn, a chess collector and musician. They must tell him that they heard about his collection at Innsbruck, a hint that this is the last agent in their chain, given the others didn't know where they were coming from. Afterwards, they will send the telegram Peter told them to as the sign that they had met with the agent. The couple, while exploring Pertisau, head into a shop full of wood carvings, where they admire a chess set and ask the carver about them. As the two talk with the woodcarver about chess sets, the latter brings up Mespelbrunn, and recommends that they visit him, giving them an excuse to go see him. Richard and Francis decide to wait a few days and enjoy some more time around the village before going to see the doctor, to establish more of an alibi. While climbing the next day and planning their visit to Mespelbrunn, Francis insists on coming with Richard to meet him. They then meet up with Henry and Robert, who have now arrived at Pertisau and have climbed up the mountain to meet them, despite Henry's inexperience. After coming down from the mountain, the four are eating when Richard and Robert leave Francis and Henry at the table, and the latter two end up discussing their first impressions of each other on their initial meeting. Then Henry brings up their being followed in Nuremberg. Francis doesn't elaborate on her and Richard's situation, but Henry offers his support if they should need it. The four spend a few more days together climbing and enjoying Pertisau until Robert and Henry decide to head to Innsbruck again for a few days. They plan on calling Francis and Richard from Innsbruck to see if the couple is still there when they will be able to return to Pertisau. There is also, Francis tells them, a dance that evening, something she found out from Frau Schichtel. The woman had offered to let Francis wear her daughter's dress to the dance. The daughter is gone, Francis says her husband having been an enemy of the Nazis and the young woman herself disappearing. Francis and Richard then start out for Mespelbrunn's. When they arrive, the woman who is at the door appears afraid, but Richard tells her that they are there to see the chess collection of the doctor. A man also appears behind the woman, a man that had been watching them at the Pertisau Hotel, and he lets them in, then says he will call on Mespelbrunn. The man who enters, in the guise of the doctor, is a shock. It is von Aschenhausen, the young man Francis had been speaking to at the Huge party shock. back at Oxford. Yes, uh, ev- all, all parties are very surprised to see each other. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is kind of a staple of spy fiction. Uh, so I'm not necessarily going to single out this book like unduly, but there are a lot of coincidences yes. Uh, yes. in this story. <laughs> And mostly people running into people, right? Yeah. Like Yes, every character does seem to come back uh, for a second, more significant meeting of, of the couple. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, and it's always happening. They run into somebody a bit later from home, <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> wow. I don't know, it's just, it's, it's drained my credulity just a little bit, I think, but yeah, it's okay, you know, yeah. it, it was still fun, I guess, especially because... Francis and von Aschenhausen had this, like, 
big heavy discussion at the beginning at this party. Like they kind of killed the vibe of the party because <laughs> they were both getting strident about their political views. And of course, von Aschenhausen was being a, he was all civil at first, but then when the politics came out, his Nazi nonsense came with it. And, you know, so it was almost like, okay, surely we're going to run into him again, right? <laughs> so I think this one is kind of like, even though it seems coincidental, it is kind of justified in sense of a story, right? You're yeah. like, mm-hmm. I want to see that guy again, because that was a nasty encounter that has to mean something. Right? Yeah, it feels very significant, so it has to like come back somehow. And to be fair to McGinnis, this does have a literary tradition well predating spy fiction. I mean, the first volume of Don yeah. Quixote in particular is like really, really ridiculous with this stuff. And I mean, I guess that there, that's kind of the point is to be ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, even though it strains believability in some situations, I think she handles it well with the pacing and plotting of the story. Yes. Mm. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Yes. Chekhov's character. Yes. Is what it is. <laughs> By the way. I'll just mention this now. Von Aschenhausen is played by Basil Rathbone in the film version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So during the next scene, you can imagine that if you want. Although <laughs> I think the way they did this in the film was quite different, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. We will mention this later on, but it does yeah. not feel as tense, like you said. But as the three converse, it becomes clear to the couple that whoever was Mespelbrunn is gone and that Von Aschenhausen has gotten rid of him. But it seems von Aschenhausen, while suspicious, is not yet sure of the couple's true intentions for being there. Frances then makes the bold move of playing some music on the piano, and after she does so, there are noises from upstairs that von Aschenhausen claims is his dog. He then quickly leads Frances and Richard to the door and says his goodbyes to them, inviting them back Sunday. Back on the road, Richard hides Francis and himself into a small wood. He then leads Francis to realize what she hadn't before. The noises from upstairs weren't a dog, but a person being held hostage, signaling for help after hearing Francis sing. Richard plans on going alone to the house at night to help the man escape, taking his walking stick, which conceals a sword. They then see the other man who was in the house going out by bike to Pertisau, likely to ask about the Mileses. With only von Aschenhausen there, they decide to head back through the woods and attempt to help the captive man. As they do, however, they spot the other man returning to the house. The couple decide to climb to the top of the mountain and find a path back to the village from there. After reaching the top, Francis spots von Aschenhausen and the other man with a dog out on the path. The couple, spurred on by this, begin a scramble down the mountain, but the dog is on their heels and makes a leap towards them when he catches up with them. Richard is able to react in time, though, taking out his sword and his cane and skewering the dog. Richard pulls out his blade and the two, shaken by the gruesome turn of events, continue down, only remembering as they hear the man approaching that they have left a trail of bloodstains. And that was a very precise stabbing that Richard did there. Yeah. Yeah. Quite unexpected, I guess. Yes. That he would be able to master that. Just like, that was like a pro right there. Yeah. It it (laughs) talks about how far the the sword goes into the dog. Like, it's down to the hilt, basically. Maybe he did fencing at Oxford, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And this is also the one instance where she did... She almost created this real tense, like, horror kind of feeling with the, the almost implying that there was something especially vicious about this dog. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get to see it, but 
it's implied and talked about. This dog is bad news. Like, it's not just a normal <laughs> attack dog. And at first, the dog doesn't even seem real. Like, it just feels like a line of bullshit that Ashenhausen is laying yeah. on them to, like, get yeah. them out of the house. But then yeah. all of a sudden, there the dog is. Yeah, it does seem like, oh, well, he doesn't actually have a dog yeah. until all of a sudden it is there. Yeah. And later on, I mean, we're going to say this anyway, so we might as well, like, when they rescue the guy, Smith, Richard mentions that the dog has been killed. He seems relieved. Yeah. Yeah. Like, somehow, somehow this dog was a weapon that they were using. And, like, it's just, it's, I, I kind of like it, uh, how she hints at it and doesn't really describe it. Leaves it up to your imagination. And, I mean, the I dog breeds most associated with Germany. The German Shepherd and the Rottweiler both have yeah. reputations mm-hmm. for aggression and being particularly mean, especially if trained that way. Uh, right. So it does kind of conjure up that, that imagery. Yeah. But they are caught up to by the man, other than von Aschenhausen, and the man makes his way towards Richard with a revolver, but Francis, who the man isn't paying attention to, takes a stone and throws it at him. He is hit between the shoulder blades and loses his balance, falling to his death. With von Aschenhausen likely following the scream the man made when he fell, the Mileses continue their descent and decide to do so through the path to Mespelbrunn's house. Luckily, they run into Henry and Robert on the road, who have driven to the mountain looking for them. Richard and Robert go together to the house to get the captive held there, while Francis stays with Henry. Henry admits to Francis that it was comments he made that got the man from Espelbrun's house suspicious, and he and Robert wanted to see if she and Richard were all right. Meanwhile, Robert is able to sneak into the house and free the man held there, an agent who goes simply by Smith. The two are able to get Smith back to the car, and they drive back to the village, where Francis and Richard plan to quickly freshen up, gather some belongings, and go, knowing the authorities will be after them shortly. Frau Schichtel discovers them, but she helps them, giving them food and Francis, her daughter's dress, as she promised, a common outfit, and prepares an excuse that they appeared to be heading to the dance that evening. In the car, leaving Pertizau, Smith uses the items in Francis' makeup box to alter his appearance, and the group drops him off at a station in Yenbach. They then drive back to Innsbruck, where Richard and Francis can get passports made at a place Smith tells them about. However, they don't have enough cash on them, so they plan for Robert to get them some money, and be at a church at 11 the next morning, where he can discreetly leave it for Francis. Once they have the passports and money, the couple will cross the border through the Brenner, then travel to Paris. Before dropping them off, Henry is able to send the telegram to Geneva, which he affirms he'll do. Once they are able to slip past any of the possible authorities on their way through Innsbruck, the Mileses reach the location Smith told them, knocking a specific pattern, and are led in by a woman named Lisa to see an heir Schultz. The latter two change the Miles' appearances by cutting and dyeing their hair before taking their passport photos. After taking the pictures, they are able to rest. Francis wakes up the next morning, gets ready to meet Robert, and leaves the house without waking Richard. Before going, she tells Lisa she should be back by noon. On her way to the church, Francis runs into Annie, their maid from Oxford, who recognizes her even as... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. The uh, other, like, the other Chekhov's character. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you know, you know what's funny too is these coincidences actually made me more suspicious. 
Like mm. they made me kind of more paranoid that the, the people that they were running into were not what they seemed to be kind of. Yeah. Thing. I mean, why exactly Especially, did you have a German made to begin with, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there was Van Cortland. Right? Yeah, right. Like mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'll save I'll save this comment for later. But, but yeah, let's get to the let's let's finish first. And then I'll say if I remember what I had in my head. <laughs> here, but yeah. Yes. So, yes, Francis runs into their maid, Annie who recognizes her even as Francis walks away from her. She thinks she loses Annie after reaching the church, but when she comes out with the money Richard leaves her, Annie is waiting. She pretends to be someone else as she greets Annie, and in privacy, Annie tells her she has heard of her and Richard being in Innsbruck through her friend Johan, the same young man from the hotel they stayed at, who was also interviewed by police about them. (laughs) (laughs) Annie wants to help the Mileses, and while Francis initially resists, she eventually asks Annie if she could get Johan to draw up a map of the mountains around the South Tyrol border and leave it at the house she is staying at. Francis says goodbye to Annie, then starts back to Schultz's house, lost in thought. It is because of her oversight, not moving as a common German would, that draws attention to her, specifically from von Aschenhausen, who happens to see her from a cafe he is in, watching Henry and Robert, who also see and recognize Francis. Von Aschenhausen follows her, oblivious to his presence, until Robert draws her attention, and von Aschenhausen starts chasing after her down an alley. Robert is unable to reach Francis before she is grabbed by German officers, but he does get the number plate of the car she is taken away in and finds out the place she is heading is Dreikirchen. Richard, meanwhile, has woken up and is waiting for Francis to return. As noon passes, he and Lisa get worried. Annie arrives at the house soon after with the map, and with her comes the confirmation that something must have happened to Francis. Richard goes to call Henry and Robert and arranges for them to meet in Annie's family store. Before he leaves, he gets his passports from Schultz, who is also getting ready to move elsewhere with Lisa. In the back of the store, Richard waits until Henry and Robert show up. When they do, they tell Richard about seeing Francis getting taken and about Dreikirchen. They make a plan where Henry and Robert will get another car and pack their luggage in it, then pick up Richard on the road nearer to Dreikirchen. As the former two carry out their part of the plan, Robert reveals that he got a letter from Tony, who is on his way home without the young woman. After picking up Richard, Henry lets the other two know about his gun in case they run into trouble. The three arrive and make their way toward the castle of Dreikirchen. Robert goes ahead as a scout, as he had proven capable of stealthy feats with his rescue of Smith. Robert gets close to one of the castle walls and hides in some bushes when he hears people approaching, two men walking around the castle. Robert sees them both look towards the same window, where, he concludes, Francis must be held. After the two men pass and he knocks out another man who exited the castle, he signals to Richard and Henry. Together, the men enter the castle through the kitchen and knock out the cook. They make their way to the room where Francis is guest to be and hear the raised voices of von Aschenhausen and another as they move closer to it. Richard, Robert, and Henry burst into the room, using the element of surprise to their advantage as they attack the two men in the process of torturing Francis, who is tied to a chair. Richard pins von Aschenhausen to the desk he is sitting behind while Henry and Robert struggle with the other and try to help Francis. 
The man takes out a revolver, and Henry wrestles the gun out of his grip, but he appears to go for another gun in his other pocket. Before he shoots, however, Robert takes out the gun, which Henry had given him, and shoots first. Pretending to be unconscious, Von Aschenhausen waits until Richard's grip on him loosens to tie him up, before throwing a candlestick on the desk in his face. He then grabs a gun from the desk drawer and aims at Francis and Robert, and two shots ring out, with one from Henry killing Von Aschenhausen. Francis realizes, after a moment, that the German's bullet had hit her in the arm. They tend to the wound, while also getting the money and keys for Von Aschenhausen's car. The telephone rings, and Richard answers in the guise of Von Aschenhausen, saying that Francis has talked, and that the others were crossing into Switzerland, so they should watch that border closely. With a paper containing Von Aschenhausen's seal, the group leave to start their attempt to cross the border. They successfully cross the Brenner and pass security there. Now in Italy, they make plans to meet in Paris, parting ways when Henry and Robert drop the Mileses off at Grenoble. The couple make their way to the station, close to the end of their journey. Thus concludes Above Suspicion. Yeah. And there's one really good line at the end where they say, this isn't the end for any of us. It's just the beginning. Yeah. Leaving us on that like, kind of dark, ominous note. Yes. There was definitely a lot of, especially towards the end, there was a lot of political grandstanding. Yeah. But, I mean, mm-hmm. considering the time it was written, I can forgive it. <laughs> it's appropriate, I guess. Yeah, I don't think it really cut into the story too much at all. She certainly puts her voice into the novel, but right. I don't think really goes on any digressions that are, like, not appropriate or feel, like, forced or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's usually through the conversations between characters, and they, they usually feel pretty natural. Yeah, definitely. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I mean, definitely for the most part, but I just, I felt like occasionally it's like, okay, the characters are mouthpieces now, I get it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's, but, yeah. So what do you all think of Richard and Francis as a couple? I like them a lot. Yeah, I do too. I thought the one kind of silly thing, aside from the coincidence, was they appear to speak not only both flute German, but their accent is good enough to like pass for native speakers. <laughs> yeah, they can uh, adopt, <laughs> so they're very good at this, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, especially... Richard just is doing these things, you know, like not just piercing the dog, but like a lot of other things that throughout the book where you're just like, oh, he can do that. Yeah. Yeah, because he has the reason he's chosen is he's got like a photographic memory and he's able to just quickly memorize everything that he's handed. Yeah. A true Oxford man. (laughs) He's not an ordinary professor. No. You get the idea like maybe he was actually in a like some kind of officer position during the world war one or something like that i don't know but mm-hmm. as a couple though i was thinking like it seems i mean i mean obviously it's it's kind of an expression of affection in a way but it seems like richard does underestimate francis quite a bit. he does oh yeah pretty much the whole novel and yeah. what i like about francis a lot is despite the fact that she gets captured she's not really a damsel in distress at all the time of the novel that she's spent in captivity is very very brief and for the most part, she's just as strong and bold as Richard is, which yes. you really don't see that from a lot of women characters at the time. Right. So unfortunately, what you've just said and hinted at brings up the biggest problem that I have with this novel. And it is also a problem that I had with Message from Malaga. And I was actually really interested to read this book, having read one of her books before. I wanted to see, and I couldn't quite remember the details of how I felt about it, or why, I should say, 
But I did look at the old review on Goodreads that I wrote of that book. And I feel like Helen McGinnis has a thing about perspective. And sometimes it's just not where I want it to be. Like that whole section where Francis gets abducted, all of a sudden, we don't see her point of view at all anymore. Right, we don't. And yeah. it's like her moment of greatest peril. And because we've been getting to know her and spending time in her head all this time, and I didn't mind the digressions to Richard in the earlier chapters. I, I, I didn't like him that much at first, but I was slowly getting to like him, right? But especially during that time, I wanted to spend with her. Like when she was kidnapped, how she felt being in the car how it was like serious all of a sudden because she was worried a lot yeah you know and she was hiding it from richard and richard was he knew right or he would he almost assumed sometimes it was worse than it actually was but like and and then all of a sudden to pull away at that moment why would you do that i i don't understand that i didn't like that decision it actually it almost put me off the end of the book just a tad bit mm-hmm. i wish she hadn't done that and that's like my biggest complaint with this book i generally liked it but as with her other novel, I just sometimes feel like her point of view is not where I would like it to be. So I suppose that's on me. But I just, <laughs> I don't know. I just Yeah, I didn't mind it when I was reading it. I mean, now that you mentioned it, it does sound strange. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe she just, I don't, yeah, I, I'm not sure why she decided to do that. Um, there, there could be reasons why. I mean, the it's character feels like, she... like a self-insert in a lot of ways. And maybe she just didn't want to take herself yeah. there. I, I don't know. I think she almost didn't want to make it too uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I feel like, you know, I've mentioned it was pleasant, and I feel like she didn't want it to be too unpleasant by showing that session of, of whatever torture they right. put her through. And they do imply that it was quite rough. Yeah. And, you know, you wouldn't want to see that, I, I guess, is what uh, Helen thought. There is an implied suggestion of, like, implied sexual assault, and it's not like... I, I don't think it suggested that it went there, but it suggested that as a threat, Auschenhausen kind of took it there. And mm. she didn't want to show that too intimately, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I didn't bring this up in, when I was doing my summary, but what Robert finds out is that it, it is likely, it is implied that the woman Tony was after, she had committed suicide, likely after a sexual assault right. uh, from the officers, the Nazi officers. And it sounds like that that is the reason he was so uh, upset to see Francis in that position. So it, it does imply that it would have gone that far if they had not arrived. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I've sort of come to terms with it, but I still don't, I, I don't know. I wish he had stayed with her. That's all. Like, you know, and being her point of view, maybe you're right. Maybe she did, she did like... And I, I kind of thought that too. Like she just, it's just not, not where she wanted to go with it. And it was neat seeing the men do heroics, I guess, you know, it's like my issue is not so much that Francis had to be rescued. Like she never comes across as a damsel in distress. No, and I'm doesn't. sure if she no. had had the point of view, she still wouldn't have, Yeah. but just that it had to be like that. Like I would have, I don't know. I yeah. still would have rather seen her perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, after the whole ordeal, she snaps right back in, even getting shot yeah. through the arm and all that. You know, they, they go back into RPG mode of searching the corpses and getting all the yeah. loot and, you know, keys <laughs> and stuff to get them out of there. Yeah. I think Francis's portrayal is pretty realistic because there are definitely moments when she is very shaken by what yeah. has happened. And obviously there are quite a few things that happen that are quite gruesome yeah. that she has to witness. And she reacts to them, but she does 
she doesn't overreact and she doesn't she isn't like punished for reacting to them i don't think yeah no yeah and richard keeps thinking she's gonna like mess up and give them away or something like that like the whole thing with the piano and he's like oh no she's not going to no please please (laughs) you know then she does something really cool yeah. And he's like impressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, this is why I love her, right? Yeah, later on he's like, I could have killed you. Yeah. I guess that was pretty adorable, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really does feel like they got through all this together. Like, I don't think Richard could have done it on his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, though, uh, there's a lot of like stiff upper lip kind of British stuff. There's There's also some really good asides that, like, just, I guess, come out of Helen's own perspective and sort of puts them in francis's mind usually it's things like i i liked early on i wrote this down uh, i didn't exactly quote it but it just she talks about people with guilty consciences developing persecution mania and of course the various persecution mania called up um sodom's yeah. 1987 <laughs> album but it was still a really cool observation yeah. i thought <laughs> and it's true <laughs> and it's just talking about how like Germans were all persuaded to feel like, oh, you know, the whole world is against us and like they're all trying to bring us down and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's a commonly used tactic and I think it's kind of deliberate. I mean, it inspires a certain feeling in people, some kind of innate sense that you need to fight back for survival and fear is a really good motivator to get people to do horrible things. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of that throughout the book and we see... The kind of manipulation that's going on. Yeah. I mean, they, they make it clear that there's propaganda everywhere and it's lies and disinformation. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some other funny things that I wanted to point out, though. I think it's Van Cortland's observation of the difference between British and American people. He says, when an Englishman tells a joke, he looks like he doesn't expect anyone to laugh. And that's part <laughs> of the joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That dry English humor. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah. Van Cortland, I thought he was an agent of some kind. I thought he was definitely a spy. Like, I didn't think he was an enemy. Like, I, I never thought... Although the possibility of some betrayal in the book, like, that that might happen, did yeah. sort of come into my mind. Mm. I didn't think that he was, like, a German spy or something with that slightly... Well, I guess more of a Dutch-sounding name. Yep. But I thought that he would at least be, like somehow placed highly in american intelligence or something because he was just so resourceful and he was always showing up like all the time yeah wherever they were (laughs) before they became friends (laughs) yeah i wasn't sure where they were gonna take the character yeah they never really went there with him i don't think yeah i did think when they met in the museum i had initially in a a feeling that he would be some sort of spy that was sort of in on it maybe but that Turned out not to be the case. Yeah. She does this thing with tension, too, that I'm not sure that I always, like... She makes things seem to be, like, really serious. Like, like something really bad is going to happen, and then it just doesn't. Like, it's just sort of anticlimactic, almost, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of action mm-hmm. happens in the book until, like, more or less the last quarter or so. It is mm-hmm. when stuff really starts to get going with uh, conflicts and being in physical danger and all that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of buildup. And I think it yeah. pays off in the end. Yeah, I was also reminded of just the way the way she talked about people being, I guess, radicalized, especially Germans. Right. It kind of seemed very like, you know, it's like we haven't changed very much. (laughs) No. It kind of reminded me of recent things and how like 
all this emphasis is on now on how people can be swayed by like hanging out too much on certain online forums or something like that, you know, getting over politicized like the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people are people. And I mean, World War II is still in within living memory of some people. But I mean, if you read Thucydides, the way he talks about the demagogue Cleon, it's very, very much more of the same stuff. And that was 2,500 years ago. So technologies around us might change, but people as people, I don't know how much they change over time. It seems to be a lot of the same character traits and weaknesses throughout history. Yeah. We don't seem to learn collectively, I guess, from better examples on a regular basis. Right. So yeah. things happen. Yeah. So yeah, Mr. Smith, that was a little bit anticlimactic as well. Like you just kind of showed up and put on some makeup and then disappeared like yeah all that for him <laughs> and to be fair i think helen was even a little bit like that like like uh, richard made some comments or i think it was maybe it wasn't richard it was probably van Cortland actually because it seems like something he would say you know it's kind of like what that guy really that that's what all this yeah, was right. about <laughs> <laughs> so i think i think she knew i think i think that she knew that it was a little bit, but the book isn't quite, it's not quite late enough in time for it to be cynical about the whole, like, spy thing. No, it's not. The whole yeah. agent business. Yeah. And this guy had to be rescued. He was in a fix, just like Francis was at the end of the book, and, like, can't really do anything without some intervention. And it seems like von Aschenhausen knew a lot about the plan because he had the sheet music out there right in the open right yep. he was hoping mm -hmm. they would do something with it like it's probably something that smith would never have done because it's just way too risky right but he's gambling and he's like yeah somebody's gonna like they're waiting for some kind of signal they're gonna refer to that music or whatever because like we already know that that's somehow significant don't they even make a comment when they first see the music that it seems too forward yeah. or something like i, I think, think they so. even might have mentioned that <laughs> yeah he wasn't in the story that much, but he seemed like a pretty wily opponent. Mm. And he was like, the game he was playing with them in that one scene, the big scene that they have together, where like he's pretending to be not Nazi all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like, Francis is like, excuse me, we were just at this party where you, you acted like a complete yeah. dick. And, yeah. <laughs> and even then he's still incredibly sexist. Oh yeah, he makes all kinds of condescending remarks, yeah. Yeah. Gretchen, why don't we briefly talk about the film? I watched it too. I found towards the end my attention was really starting to wander though. So yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe if you want, just give your general thoughts about how you felt about it. Yeah, I feel there were quite a few differences, I will say that. They they do change quite a bit of things in it, which I thought was I thought it was interesting to see yeah. how they would tackle it. I thought most of the changes they made did make sense. Yeah. Like, there wasn't really, like, it, it wasn't bad mm -hmm. in the way that they changed the story. Yes. Like, they collapse Robert and Tony into the same character where mm -hmm. Robert right. has the same, like, he has an Austrian woman that had been murdered. And he does commit assassination because of it in the film. And mm. the other thing I wanted to say about that was that he also dies in the end where he ends up being shot instead of Francis. Francis is not hurt at oh. all, but... Robert is shot and killed, and they have to leave him. 
I wonder oh, if that was like a wow, haze okay. code type thing. I where, yeah, I was thinking that that maybe because he did commit murder early on, they had to, they had <laughs> yeah, to kill right. him, and even also, if it was a Nazi. Yeah, I mean, you also don't really see women getting shot too much. I don't think in some of those movies. No, that's that's interesting. I guess I I missed that. See, at, at a certain point, I sort of. I was with it like for the first half and then maybe a little bit more. And then I just kind of like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I wasn't really enjoying it that much, mm-hmm. even though like, it seemed like it was a good, interesting new version of the story. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just probably the mood I was in or whatever. Yeah. I still want to check it out, but unfortunately real life got in the way last night and I had to do mm-hmm. other stuff. <laughs> yeah. They also do collapse some things, obviously to make it, quicker one thing that i i did kind of enjoy a little bit more than the book is in the book when robert is trying to figure out where francis is in dry he Mm. has to go to the tourist office because he hears the first part of the name of where she's going but the person who's saying it gets cut off so he has to go and subtly ask about it um and they just cut that out immediately they just have the person say the full name which makes it much easier there's no like sneaking around that was really subtle in the book i actually enjoyed that quite a bit i i should kind of meant to comment on that that the way that richard kind of found to get around around things like that didn't quite go as expected mm-hmm. the ways he did that were, were often really good and again like it was kind of like wow he's really good at this already but like it was cool to see at the same time and yeah joan crawford plays francis in the film mm-hmm. yeah they're both americans in the film right yes yes richard is very american <laughs> he's not i had a little trouble getting used to that uh <laughs> yes. it wasn't quite how i pictured richard. he still attended oxford though <laughs> yeah right of course yeah <laughs> yeah I'm not sure if I've ever seen the actor in anything else. Uh, Fred McMurray, I believe, is his name. I'm not sure. I feel like the name is familiar, but I'm not sure if I have seen any films with him. Oh, uh, oh. Wikipedia says Double Indemnity, which I saw mm. a long oh. time ago. <laughs> okay, yeah, I've yes. seen that too. I like that movie a lot. Yes. Um, and that brings together William Faulkner and Lee Brackett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, both worked on the script at various times. So. Yes. Kind of a cool connection there. Uh, we'll be doing her later on, maybe when we talk about planet stories and such like. I don't think we'll be able to shoehorn Faulkner into the podcast, though. I'd, I'd really like an excuse to mm. do so. Yeah. Gretchen, you're reading Light in August now, oh, right? So yes. Good. Yes. I'm, so uh, I haven't had the chance to read too much yet, but I am I really enjoy it so far. Yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the best ones he's done. I yeah. haven't read it. Because I read As I Lay Dying for the second time this last semester, and I I love that book. And so I I thought I should check out more Faulkner. Yeah, that one and Absalom Absalom are, like, really, really Mm. good. And they're, like, really dark, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm looking forward to delving more into that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, definitely recommend it. Yes. So, yeah, also this novel about suspicion, I would recommend overall. Not science fiction in the least, but we wanted to read this one for an example of your typical spy novel. And if we're going to read a spy novel, we might as well read one that got a lot of good reviews and has some interesting characters. Yes, so agreed. I think we're going to move on into a little bit more science fiction-y territory in the three remaining stories we're doing tonight. Thank you. 
Sherlock Holmes, while introduced in the 1887 novel, A Study in Scarlet, became massively popular in 1891 with its stories in the Strand, beginning with a scandal in Bohemia, and as such inspired a great deal of the detective fiction that came out in the 1890s and early 1900s. Kate Morrison, in her book Morality and the Law in British Detective and Spy Fiction from 1880 to 1920, details a lot of this stuff, and one interesting point she emphasizes that Sherlock Holmes is an amateur detective versus a professional detective. After Sherlock Holmes's quote-unquote death in 1893, the Strand needed a slot to replace one of its most important heroes, and the one they chose, Arthur Morrison's Martin Hewitt series, was an example of this kind of professional detective-type character. Martin Hewitt appeared in seven issues of The Strand in 1894, some of which were collected in book form, and later stories were still published in the Windsor Magazine. So I didn't realize these were published in The Strand. I, yeah. I didn't really look too much into this. I was actually going to read at least one more of the Martin Hewitt stories to see if they were like this one. But I'm surprised. I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This one came from the June issue of the initial 1894 run in The Strand, and Morrison, that is Kate Morrison, the author of the spy fiction book, notes that Hewitt often focused on white-collar type criminals rather than people of the lower classes that were frequently featured as villains in detective fiction of the time. And the case of the Dixon Torpedo, the one we read tonight, is one of these stories that does focus on a more white-collar criminal type. In total, there were 25 Martin Hewitt stories. The last series was called The Red Triangle, published in 1903. Morrison, this time referring to the author of the detective series, was born in 1863 and died in 1945. He grew up in London's East End and took an interest in literature and cycling at an early age and wrote a lot of articles on both as he became involved in the newspaper industry and worked for the Globe in the late 1880s. And in 1890, he started working for The Strand, where he published his first book, The Shadows Around Us, which was a collection of gothic fiction. His literary career greatly slows down after 1905, but he wrote quite a bit of fiction for a good 15 years and retired from journalism in 1913. He was also a big collector of Japanese woodblock art, which he donated a great deal to the British Museum. His most well-known work these days likely isn't Hewitt, but rather the novel A Child of the Yago from 1896, which is an East End social novel that focuses on poverty and crime. And he had another detective character in the form of a Horace Donington, who was this time a lower-class character and apparently much more morally gray than Hewitt, and honestly, it sounds a lot more interesting than Hewitt. This whole bio sounds <laughs> more yeah. interesting. So, yeah, getting into the Dixon Torpedo story itself, I, mean, I don't know. It was okay, if we're being generous. It really does feel like a knockoff in places, but I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid being influenced by Sherlock Holmes, especially when you're his direct replacement in The Strand. Yeah. Even still, this feels like a bit of a letdown in a lot of ways. I thought the writing and dialogue was kind of flat. Yeah. I think for the most part, the writing and dialogue is one and the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there's no descriptive prose at all. Like, it's just just guys talking to each other. And I wouldn't mind that if it was, like, snappy or, or really captivating or something. But it's not. And I was thinking of, like, I mean, we're doing the kind of the pre- you know, the, the pre-talk about the story now, but and I was reminded of another Holmes knockoff that I 
started reading once and didn't finish. It was Solar Ponds, his name is. And I think he's written all, or at least in part, by August Derleth. So this would be more like 1930s, probably, or 40s, maybe. Yeah. It wasn't good, but at least that one, he had a partner, and he was like a a little bit less well-written thing on how, and and some people are bothered by this in Conan Doyle, too, but how Holmes is always showing off, right? And he especially enjoys showing off to Watson because, you know, like Watson's his roommate and Watson's his partner. And he's like, hey, look at the great detective work. Right. And then I bet you don't notice these awesome things that I notice. Right. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the Solar Pond story had that. And I'm like, this doesn't even have that. No. This doesn't have anything like charismatic about it. Yeah. We'll be getting to that in a couple episodes when we do The Beast of Bradhurst Avenue. But yeah, this is just like, I don't know. It's short. So I yeah. guess it's like not too painful. But I just find it difficult to really say anything like positive about it even though it's like not like bad it's just it doesn't really have anything going for it and i thought it might be an interesting one to do because it involves the theft of these blueprints of the dixon torpedo that sounds like it's going to be like from description anyway reading about the story in these retrospective works on spy fiction of which there's quite a bit i mean there's an enormous amount of spy and detective fiction if you're into this early stuff i don't think we're going to really get into a lot of it here but no. A lot, a lot, a lot has been written about it, and we'll post the links to the books that we covered for this episode in the bibliography, as always. But this is one of the very few that were chronicled in those retrospectives that sound like they would have overt science fiction elements in a similar fashion to the episode we did last time of like a futuristic super weapon that's going to be a total game changer in warfare and you also get the same kind of deal in like angel of the revolution i was gonna say that yeah even angel and the revolution right and like it's it's really funny to me and i keep i'm gonna keep bringing this up i guess for the next little while but how often we keep referring to angel of the revolution and how if you talk about angel of the revolution to somebody it makes it sound like one of the most awesome books right yeah and you read it and the writing's not really I know, like it's it's not that great, yeah. but talking about Angel of the Revolution is great. <laughs> so yeah. maybe Gretchen, one of these days, you might want to read it. <laughs> yes, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Then I can make references as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but here, nope, none of that. The torpedo is just a MacGuffin and could have literally been anything. Unfortunately, however, one interesting use of technology we do get is some descriptions of early camera work for fine duplication of documents. Yeah. There's also a couple gadgets that hide secret documents and stuff, so that's kind of cool. But it's kind of a stretch as far as any really relationship to science fiction goes. Again, the write-ups really did make it sound like the torpedo element would play more of a role in the story, and it really, really doesn't. So I thought that was a bit unfortunate, but I guess it's more of a good example of what post-Holmes British detective fiction looks like. So if you're, I guess, interested in that whole thing, maybe this one would be one to check out. Though I don't know if this is supposedly one of his better stories or not. I mean, there's 25 of these. and here's the thing. I I did mean to check out one or two of the other ones, and I just didn't get around to it. And it didn't, like... But, you know, you reading that, even reading that biographical information made me kind of interested in what else does he have to offer? Like, this story, maybe it was just written in three days, and he didn't... I don't know, like, he didn't add anything to it other than just the guys talking about what happened. And it's bare, it's so bare bones that it's like, 
yeah, I don't know. I got to have like envisioning more entertaining scenarios. Like imagine if Hewitt had figured out at the end that the torpedo was like not real. <laughs> like the plans were fake and yeah. it was some way for the guy to like get money or get some kind of like compensation or something. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Like, but no, there's none of that. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, one thing that may be of interest to check out some of the other stories is there is a TV adaptation of this one in the 70s on BBC from the series The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. But this version of Dixon Torpedo doesn't feature Hewitt as a character, but rather a new character they just made up called Jonathan Pride. So I didn't get a chance to watch this episode or any of the other episodes of the show, but it apparently features a number of the other Hewitt stories. So maybe they felt like they were giving a lot of weight to him. And the fact that they featured a lot of Hewitt stories as adaptations, maybe there's some stuff to those. I, I really have no idea. I can see how they would be done better. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. This one didn't give me a lot to go on. So, yeah, n- not the greatest we've done for the podcast, but short. So I guess not really that painful if you want to get a sense of what it's like. Yeah. And no, there are, none of us had read it before. And we don't yeah. like, we don't assume anything just based on what somebody else might say about something, whether it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, we read it and it's short enough not to be like, it doesn't hurt yeah. that much. So. <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's short i was able to read it and it only takes about a half hour yeah. less than that to read and it's it, yeah it's not painful if you just want to read it and see what what the rivals of sherlock holmes are like yeah so it does have a MacGuffin, and <laughs> sorry i stole your word there it, it has a MacGuffin, and interestingly it's it's almost the exact same thing that was in the the film version of the novel we just did above suspicion in this case it's torpedo i think in the film it's I, it's not clear i think it's only mentioned like once there's yeah. any like underwater mines yeah i can't i just i remember that it was i thought they were saying it was like taking down submarines with magnetism or, or something like oh, that cool. but yeah. it's mentioned once and they they don't bring it up again after that right right and it's just something that i guess the screenwriter kind of thought that mcginnis didn't really give a good enough reason for like them to be wanting this guy out of the country maybe it's like no he has the plans to this special thing and that's Uh, why okay Mm. yeah right yeah no she doesn't really mention i mean aside from the fact that he got into like hot water with the nazis anything in particularly egregious he had done like stealing anything like that no that's interesting though and kind of a creative use of engineering and physics that was going on at the time because the film wasn't too far after the novel right it was 1943 43? Yeah, it's 43. Yeah, no, very interesting. All right, so I guess with that, we're going to get into the spoiler summary of this one. So if for whatever reason <laughs> you don't want to be <laughs> yeah, spoiled by this, uh, skip ahead or whatever. Um, so <laughs> We did it for you, yeah. so you don't have to. <laughs> the nature of Martin Hewitt's work, he's privy to certain kinds of information. And he notices a trend of criminals getting caught by doing something outside of their league of criminality. And one such case is going to be related to us, which is that of Mirsky, the Russian forger. So this tale starts off with Hewitt being in his office, and he admits an F. Graham Dixon, who tells him about his own invention, which is a new locomotive torpedo that is much faster and much more accurate than any current torpedo in existence. And that's about all we get on the torpedo. But 
The blueprints have been stolen out of his house, and there are no suspects and nothing has been observed. Hewitt's been commissioned to retrieve them, and Hewitt asks about Dixon's two assistants, Warsfold and Ritter, who Dixon cannot reasonably suspect. He provides Hewitt a drawing of his office suites, but no clues seem to turn up. Hewitt says that the likely thief would be trying to sell this to a government, and a simple description would be inadequate, as he would have to provide the drawings, which Dixon says are incredibly complex. A strange man comes in and asks to see Dixon, saying he must see him at once, that he has some very important steam packing to show him. The man, Hunter, had been there previously to call, and he speaks with a strange accent, not German or French, but after he leaves, Hewitt tells Dixon to question his draftsman himself. The reason will be clear to him in a few minutes. A few minutes later, and Hewitt has the missing blueprints in hand. And Hewitt knows that they have been copied, photographed, perhaps, as it would take days to redraw them by hand. Hewitt tells Dixon Ritter, the tracer, is the traitor in this case and demands to see him. When Ritter is admitted, Hewitt tells him that his relations with Hunter are well known, and Ritter immediately breaks down, says he only hid the drawings and can go get them if he wishes. He goes to get them, but obviously can't find them and returns quite sullen, and Hewitt tells him that if he doesn't give up information on Hunter, he'll be going right to jail. He makes Ritter write to Hunter, scheduling a meeting at 6 o'clock, providing his address. Hewitt takes this letter and uses that address to possibly gain entrance and destroy any negatives made from the blueprints. At 6, Hewitt returns to Dixon, glass plate negatives in hand, and tells Dixon the letter was never delivered and relates the story. Inquiring after Hunter's apartment, Hewitt learns his name is Mirsky, and he knocks on his apartment door. He hears some scuttling, and Mirsky answers, and Hewitt says that he is to deliver a letter to Mirsky, which causes him to run downstairs with the package he was carrying. This gives Hewitt an opportunity to search his apartment, and he easily finds the dark room and the negatives. He then locks Mirsky out, who returns, pounding on the door, starts cursing in Russian. Meanwhile, Hewitt starts destroying his negatives. He finds a negative for a 20-ruble bill, and this is pretty clear evidence that he's a forger, which he can bring to the police, so he looks for more forging equipment. While he's doing this, he sees Mirsky peering through the window, and through his barber friend gets a message to Scotland Yard, who are very interested in the forging stuff. He doesn't mention anything about the torpedo business, and believes that Mirsky thought the important letter Hewitt had had was from the Russian embassy. Hewitt cracked the case by observing Mirsky's visit to the office. He had brought in a different umbrella than he left with, the tube of course being hollow and able to contain the blueprints. Ritter gets fired, Mirsky gets caught and extradited back to Russia. Another case is solved for Hewitt, and Hewitt's left wondering if it would have been more profitable to have not gone to the forging business at all, but rather have stayed with the torpedo, selling secrets to governments. So that's the story. B-grade Sherlock Holmes, if we're being generous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes, it's not. Yeah. Conan Doyle, it's not. So, I mean, I guess more could have been made of it, or they could have... I don't know. There's just, there's just too much telling. There's, there's just not enough description, not enough, like, actually seeing events transpire as they are. Not very inspired, I thought. Mm. Yes. Reading it, you'll have, like, four long paragraphs in a row of <laughs> yeah. Hewitt <laughs> describing what he yeah. did and then the other man saying asking another thing and then another couple of paragraphs saying what he did we don't really see him do any of the things that he's telling 
It says it feels very stagey, uh, more so than a detective story really should be. Mm. Yeah. If he was going to sit there and tell us a story about how he went to this shitty tenement and like how nasty it was and everything, Conan Doyle did that really well in some of the stories. Like, There's a story where Watson has to go to a, an opium den or something like that, mm. and he's supposed to, I, I can't quite remember how it goes, he's supposed to rescue somebody and it's like Holmes in disguise or something, but at first he doesn't know that. So it's like, uh, I might be remembering the story slightly wrong, but... Yeah, I think it's, is it like the man with the twisted lip where he goes yes. and say, he goes to visit Holmes in the opium den? Okay, so he knew it was Holmes. I believe so. Yeah. I, now I but can't still. remember. It's been a while since I've read that one. Yeah, I haven't read that one at all. But still, it's the point is like the way he describes it is very evocative mm. and, and you're with watson the whole time and he's like telling it to you from the first person like it's very expertly done and this is nothing like that this is just some guy saying well i went to this nasty old house and then i pulled a rope and this happened and <laughs> i don't know it's just yeah <laughs> a lot of room for improvement here and maybe they do with a tv show i don't know i feel sometimes like with second rate writing and maybe not the most original plot it does play out better in tv and the movies than in literature yeah. So long as the dialogue's not terrible. Yeah, but if it's terrible, <laughs> if it's like really bad acting to accompany it, maybe it's like also funny in a way that it's kind of hard to pull off in, in a book. I, I yeah, know. yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, I think we did a lot of talk about this before actually summarizing it. I don't really have anything else to add about it. Like, even as a Holmes knockoff, I feel like there's probably better than this. I think that we've covered it pretty well. There's not much you can say about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be returning to this kind of detective fiction. Well, maybe not this kind, but certainly <laughs> detective fiction in a couple episodes time. And I, I promise you that one will be a lot more lively and have a lot more interesting ah. things to say about it. So <laughs> stay tuned in a couple episodes. Yeah, I can't wait. To that. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to some future detective stories oh, yeah. as well at some mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Jack Vance has done a number of really, really good ones. There's, of course, The Demolished Man from Alfred Bester, which is a classic future noir 50s, like from the 1950s kind of detective science fiction novel. And that's really good. So nothing bad to say about the genres, tropes, or anything like that, really. Yeah. Just because we didn't like this one. Nope. That'll be cool to get to. But I think we're going to move on, and we're going to get into a different kind of spy next. Mm -hmm. 